When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. Ten years ago, Bambi had an idea. A Jamaican-Canadian resident of Toronto at the start of her DJ career, she wanted to host a rave that celebrated the kinds of music the city was either ignoring or actively hostile to, like dancehall, garage, and jungle. The party was called Jerk, and the annual event soon grew into a symbol of resistance to the whitewashing of electronic music and a local bastion of progressive dancehall. It had been a minute since Toronto had fostered anything genuinely cool, so naturally, it was time for Bambi to head out on the road. Three years after Jerk's debut, she became the DJ for Mickey Blanco's tour, a run that would help establish her as one of electronic music's most vital talents. Not long after the Blanco tour wrapped, Bambi played some of the most storied electronic venues in the world, showing partygoers a different side of themselves with her genre-bending sets. 2019 saw the release of Bambi's first solo production, Night Vision. It was urgent, propulsive, and deliciously deviant, with deep, steely jungle scents. It was an ideal introduction to Bambi, who came off as both a student and a prophet of dancehall, eager to spread the gospel with her own rhythms. After COVID put the world on pause for two years, Bambi returned to releasing her own music and was enlisted as a co-producer on Kalela's long-awaited sophomore album, Raven. But in 2023, she leveled up. The solo Bambi tracks that appeared in advance of her debut EP, Infinity Club, due out August 4, tapped even further into the fearlessness that defined Bambi as an artist from the beginning, exploring new arenas and sounding at home in each of them. One touch brought in airy jungle synths and pounding breakbeats. Slip Slide is a sex jam built on the rich history of UK rap, and Hooked is a late contender for Pop Song of the Summer. Two weeks before Infinity Club's release, the faders Jordan Darville spoke with Bambi about how DJing informed her music, gatekeeping in electronic music, and the pleasure of showing the world stylistic connections that are too often overlooked. So... Uh, Slip Slide dropped yesterday. Uh, how do you feel when you release mu- new music? Like, how are you feeling right now? I mean, now I think I feel a little bit more like casual about it because I have so many songs coming. I don't feel so like precious about each song. Whereas before, when I was like still feeling like very much like a beginner and had less music, I was like very like fixated on the day and the time and the direction of the wind and like so like paranoid about what each song was going to do. And I think now I'm more like, I don't know, I'm probably operating with a little bit more like self-belief and just like happy it's out and not paying so much attention to it. As soon as I drop it, I'm like already focused on the next single. When you were putting together the the music video for, for this song, because I know you self-directed this one, what did you bring from your previous experience uh, directing other videos for this one? I mean, on a production level, I feel like that in and of itself is a 
a skill to be like leading something in a medium that you don't have a background in. And in terms of the genesis of the idea, I don't know, Slip Slide's a little bit weird, a weird one because it's the last song that made it on the project. Though I really wanted it on the project, it kind of feels like unrelated, like just like a weird B-side. I think maybe to other people it would feel related, but for me, it was just kind of like I got the beat at the last minute and I was like, this has to be on the project, but it doesn't necessarily feel like wholly related narrative wise like the other ones. I just like loved it so much. So it needed to be there. Something that I think Slip Slide is so emblematic about like one of your key strengths is the features and how you curate features like the the guest artists. They both elevate the songs and they add like a new dimension through their own artistry that you see them in like new and different ways, like Rags Originals verse, like in the context of that song, like he sounds new, he sounds like a different artist. When you were making that song, do you like start with the idea of a collaboration being like, I want to work with so-and-so or does it come more naturally? When I'm making the song, I definitely start with the idea of a collaboration, but I don't know who, but I can hear like the cadence or I can hear the tone. I'll definitely know before I'll be like, okay, like I have this beat and I will already know if it, if it needs to be like a male or female vocal. I will already know if it needs to be like a low or a high voice. Like I kind of already kind of have that reference in my head. And then when I get a little bit further, then it becomes more specific on who it is exactly. But yeah, when I'm making the song, I pretty much actually already know who I want featured and kind of what I want the visuals to look like more often than not as a draft when it's like really like a skeleton. And does that, you know, guide the production of the song, like getting towards that idea? It definitely does. Like, it's like definitely like how I think about song arrangement, overall like production choices will be driven by what I want it to do in the club. I try to stay away from like, this is like kind of like a bad habit. Like if I'm making something and I get excited about it and I start thinking about the visuals, I try to like not do that because it kind of, it doesn't let it breathe because I'm already like jumped seven steps ahead. I think sometimes when you're making music, you should stay in the like abstract space as much as possible. So it could go in whatever direction. And when you were assembling the songs that make up Infinity Club, did you have like an even broader concrete idea of what you wanted to achieve? Yeah. I mean, I made the songs during an artist residency in Cayman Islands. So pretty much every single song started when I was like in the Caribbean, I was like seaside and I was like, really, this is during COVID. And I was like, really isolated. You had COVID at the time I read. I did have COVID and they locked me in the room for 13 days. I like really like hunkered down. And I was like, okay, I'm going to like do two songs a day. And I could like watch people like sauntering on the beach and like eating food and playing games while they would not even let me out for a walk. It was actually crazy. But yeah, I, I pretty much created the whole project then. Um, I already knew that I had wanted to call it Infinity Club three years before when I started making music. I already had this I, this like concept. And I think for me, the overall theme of everything I do like has a, the same origin point of like being Caribbean, my family, what I've experienced in Toronto. And it just kind of stretches outward. And though it has this origin point that is consistent throughout everything it stretches out where everywhere like it's like it's multi-genre I'm, I'm like putting an emphasis on like where I'm from but also putting an emphasis on my ability to like jump genres my ability to like create connections between sounds that I think are inherent so really that's what infinity club is it's about obviously this like starting point of where I'm from but 
you know, I guess the ethos is like, it's everywhere. It's everything. It's one thing to dismiss genre conventions. Like a lot of artists do that. It's another thing to be able to connect different kinds of music that a lot of people would consider separate. And that's what Infinity Club does really well. It almost to me feels like it has the spirit of a DJ mix in the way that it sort of like elides and, and shifts and, and combines. Do you feel like your career as a DJ put you in a stronger position as a producer to be able to identify these connections and put them into your own music? A hundred percent. I think that, you know, I like, even though I obviously love being a producer, I love making music. I still feel very much like a DJ first in the way that I get excited about music in the way that I like research music and in the way that I primarily want to be a platform for other artists, though I am like stepping into this role. So I would definitely say like just the emphasis on like wanting to discover and explore music is something that I, w- I think would make any producer a stronger. The narrative, your reference points are just going to be automatically wider. And then also you just have a very intimate relationship with understanding what music makes people react, what people, what people's bodies like, what people like on a cerebral level. Like I have so many like, you know, hard in-person years of like watching that in a very like visceral way over and over and over again. So when I make music, I'm like trying to achieve the thing that I witness pretty much every night. Have there been moments while you're DJing where you're like, you'll try something new and different and just like see where this goes and it'll really go off in a way that you didn't expect? Yeah, so many. I feel like so many moments, so many moments. What's been like the most surprising like instance that you can think of? I don't know if I can think of a specific song, but I think what is surprising is like when you're in a very high octane, like high adrenaline moment in the club. And you like take a left turn and take it down like really slow and take it to like a very slow and sensual and emotional place. How quickly people will pivot with you in a very like collective communal way. That's I think that's always shocking. So I, I always feel like when you're a DJ and you're like all the way up here, there's an emphasis on like staying there. You know what I mean? You don't want to ever like leave this place. But it's actually quite surprising how you can be there and then everyone collectively wants to feel this like other feeling together. That's just like the opposite of the first feeling. And I think anytime that happens, it's such a like pleasant surprise. And like when I see DJs who are able to do that, it like really separates who I think is like an artist and a DJ versus like just someone in nightlife, because not many people can really orchestrate, you know, provoke those moments at night. It's, it's hard to do. So just going back to slip slide briefly, something that you said about, you know, the the ethos of Infinity Club and, you know, having the central point that like branches out to all these different locations, like all that tracks to me, which is why I was kind of surprised to hear you say that that particular record sort of stood out to you in the context. and You weren't sure if it was going to fit. Could you go into that feeling more and like why you didn't feel like it initially matched the record? I think I have like a weird sort of like imposter syndrome-ish thing where like, it also could be because I'm new to making music where I, I have this like idea that I want to like present as like a serious producer or a serious, like I'm trying to like do something that feels a little bit more conceptual than like a club track, even though club tracks can be very sexy club tracks can be very conceptual and, and high level. But I think, you know, infinity club is me sort of like trying to present a, a more complex narrative because there's a, there's songs that span a bunch of different sounds on there and that 
you know, are a little bit more emotional and introspective. So I think even though I really, obviously I love slip slide, it's like, you know, just more of a fun kind of like, you know, hedonistic, sexy track. So I, I didn't necessarily want to like go all the way back to that place because it's not like I'm, you know, permanently leaving that place. I just want to like really stand in the role of being able to do multiple things. So I'm kind of, you know, on a bit of a pathway right now. So I just was like, mm, I don't know about this one, but I also felt like it's like, yeah, I just loved it. Like I, it was an immediate reaction. Like usually when I hear a beat and I react like that, I know that I should be like using it. Slip, slip, slide, and I wanna get inside it. If I was a rich girl, would you let me ride it? Slip, slide, and I wanna get inside it. If I was a rich girl, would you let me ride it? Would you let me ride it? If I was a rich girl, would you let me ride it? Would you let me ride it? If I was a rich girl, would you let me ride it? Slip, slide, wanna get inside. If I was a rich girl, would you let me ride in a wet white tee? Wanna get to know me? What's the secrets like the ocean? Yeah, I, I imagine that there's like a lot of internal as well as external baggage to being labeled or embracing the label as a progressive dancehall producer. You know, you have all of this tradition that you are wary of and that you're respectful of. The question of like how to challenge yourself and how to present the challenge that you are creating to the world. It really it must be a dicey one, especially with, you know, black music genres. Mm -hmm, I agree. I mean, I feel like I'm always at odds with it for so exactly the reasons you said. I think we're talking about being Caribbean. We're talking about Jamaica specifically as a place that's like people oddly feel very familiar with, but is actually very misunderstood and, and very culturally complex. And I think that sort of dynamic trickles down to dancehall. I think dancehall is like a really complex genre that has had so many different eras and and phases that goes in and out of that informs so many other kinds of music. But I also understand that just as a regular consumer, it's really in a small box for people. So, you know, to me, obviously, as an origin point, I think it can take me to so many different places easily. Like I think dancehall can take me to electronic music. It can take me to R&B. It can take me to jungle. Like it's like a seamless connection. But I also understand that people don't see it that way. So sometimes I'm at odds with being called that because I also know it's just can be very, just like a suffocating label when I'm trying to sort of extend and present as multi-genre. So I wanted to talk specifically about Sidani's interlude. It's always a gamble to hand off a, a song on your album, you know, in title at least, to a different artist. Given everything that you've said about what you're trying to do with Infinity Club, it was almost kind of like necessary to do something like that. And it works super well. Like her verse is really incredible. It goes so well with just the overall intention of the the music that you're putting together. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that song came together and your decision to label it as Sidani's interlude. That song is really old. That song is like almost five years old. It was like one of the first things I actually ever made that I was like stuck on and couldn't finish. And I just always loved it. And I tabled it for many, many years. And then I was, when I was coming back to Infinity Club, I was like, oh, there's this song that I love. And I feel like um, now I have this like skill set to finish it. Now I, I, I can see where it's supposed to go. A lot of Infinity Club is a little bit like a diary, you know? So, so me and Sadani have spent time, formative years in the same neighborhood. 
that's like a very like, you know, I guess it's technically the hood, but it's like a very Caribbean immigrant oriented neighborhood. And I don't know, she was one of my like first friends when I was younger. She was someone that I always like really admired. And I think she is a figurehead of like the Toronto that I think is erased, but most authentic. So it's kind of like, I just symbolically would always want her on a song. And then additionally, she's a very talented vocalist, extremely talented. So it's like, there's, I guess, just having her is just like a reference to my, like, come from to like the people that I want to prioritize on my project and the people that I think should be prioritized in our city um, artistically. Yeah, it's just like a little bit of a a diary entry at at that point. It's just a, a reflection on this, like a relationship that I have to a place and to a particular community. And like, she like represents that for me. I admire her for that. Touchy feely feeling like a flower essence of my power press and pull your pedal. What's your luck? Buck bully fully ready for the knock. What give me, give me enough stuff. Crazy baby cut, cut me up. Record spin me right round, cut me right now. Bow, bow with the bling wow. Make you sing loud. Deep breaths like I'm dumb high. You're a fun guy. Lie back at the tip. Wet split mad glossy. Pretty, pretty high. City high rise staircase. Bare face, blunt smoke mask like a ritual. Southside mob, Tina Jane, the original. Call me by my pet name. Kitty buff, buff. Love lockdown. Silly cough, cough me up. I was wondering, like, if you could talk a little bit more about these Caribbean communities in Toronto, you know, places like, you know, Little Jamaica, which has just been uh, decimated by this ongoing construction. When people think about Toronto outside of the city, a lot of people think about Caravana and stuff like that. But I don't think there's like a, a conscious appreciation of just what the Caribbean community does to the city. Absolutely not. You know, I often make the comparison between Toronto and London and obviously don't want to romanticize London and London is an also a very imperfect place, but London is an example of Caribbean culture that's been like incubated, that's sort of like held in a particular, not only esteem, but like it's been archived properly. Like I think that the average person in London has a relationship with what's happening on even a very base level in in the UK. Like, you know what I mean? How sort of like the just influence of Caribbean culture, how that just has spread over the music in general there. I think the average person is kind of like pretty clear, you know what I mean? Like pretty clear about that. And I think in Toronto, as much as there's such a huge Caribbean presence, there's like a lot of erasure. I don't think we have the same sort of like media infrastructure that would help sort of archive this narrative and and formalize it even if you compare BBC and, and CBC and, and the the you know the music programming that happens in the UK compared to here um, so I definitely think that you know just with black culture in general people like to do this thing where they take black culture and they make it pop culture and they sort of deracialize it in a very convenient way so they don't have to pay homage. They can stay clear of appropriation. And it's the same thing in Toronto. To me, everything in Toronto is informed by Caribbean people coming here in the 80s. We're talking about music, slang, like every single thing, everything that has created an imprint here, everything that makes Toronto like feels like a place, like feel like specific, that makes it feel not miscellaneous is because of like the influx of Caribbean people. That's like, that's, undebatable to me. You know, there's just so many reasons. We don't really have strong creative industries here. And 
that means that storytelling is not very strong here. We have a lack of storytelling. So I think in Toronto, you know, there was this whole like dance, Caribbean dance group era 10, 15 years ago of all these like Caribbean dance groups. They had like all these like widespread competitions and it was like a huge thing in our city that nobody knows about. No one knows about. But if you like go on YouTube, you can like drum up like a million videos of this like culture that has basically like died off that really was the it in the city was the thing that people were like looking at. That's just like one example. So I think that, yeah, there's just a lack of cultural archiving and storytelling in Toronto that makes the erasure more possible. And I think obviously this erasure I'm talking about happens everywhere. It happens, you know, in America with African-American culture happens. This is things that people just like to do with black culture period. But the way that it happens in Toronto is like, I would really sad and like annoying. So you know, it is a it is a point for me to like, yeah, just sort of like center that to keep speaking about it, to put an emphasis on something that I are that I think is important that I think defines us essentially. Something that you said about Toronto deracializing black music stood out to me because when I when I think about your rave series Jerk, um, that's a very black forward production. Like you are embracing and publishing this music um, that you play as black music, house music, techno, jungle, dancehall, all of it. Jerk doesn't shy away from that. In a way, that kind of makes it impossible to deracialize because it's so visible in the literature and how you present it. It kind of forces it to remain this this underground party, would you say? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think it's to its detriment. And it's also the reason why it's it's successful. Like, I think I have a lot of trouble, like just on a logistical level doing jerk because it's very hard to find the space, very hard to find a sponsor, very hard to sell something that I think to brands or to like other entities feels like, you know, just the emphasis on like using particular language, I think marginalizes it. It's sort of like a marketability in a particular way to brands. And then on the other side, I think it's the reason why it has such a cult following. It's the reason why I think people come and it, it like, you know, it transcends being a party. It feels like this type of nearly movement, you know, the way that people are like engaged, like the behavior, people are just like really dialed in for that night. They're like really dialed in in a really like communal participatory way that, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I don't see at parties a lot, you know, so I think it wins in that way. It's just, you know, in the other way, it's just like very hard for me to like, when it comes time to who's going to pay for this, like, it's hard for me to just like, you know, figure that out. What you just mentioned sort of reminded me of this idea of pretension in in dance music that you've attacked. Perhaps Jerk is a a space where, because there's such a lack of that in the kinds of music that you play and, and put together, people can release themselves in this way that, you know, other spaces they can in other spaces in Toronto. I was just wondering if you could, you know, talk to me about how you've seen pretension materialize in dance music in ways that have affected you personally, not necessarily like in like to the detriment of your career or whatever, but just in ways that have been particularly notable for you. I mean, I think that, you know, like pretty much every single thing on this planet, like everything is racialized. Music is very racialized and the identities that we attach to it. And I think that you know, it's not only about electronic music being appropriated, but it's the it's the way that it's sort of like gatekept and seen as this like higher, more intellectual art form that 
you have to be of a certain class bracket or operating in a particular way culturally to participate. And I think that when I started DJing, when I was like looking for sort of like peers or comrades, it definitely felt like I wasn't like white adjacent enough to participate, that I was already labeled as like a normative Black person because of, especially because of being Jamaican, especially because of liking Black music. You know, I mean, I wasn't weird enough or I wasn't obscure enough. So it definitely creates this like cultural hierarchy and stratifies forms of music that are actually related. Um, and I think I experience this all the time socially. I, I see it socially and I and language is very coded. So I see it when people are, you know, what we think is quote unquote basic, what we think is ghetto, what we think is cool, what we think is weird. You know, how we sort of like fragment blackness. When people want to be avant-garde, they lean into white art forms and, and lean towards white artists. And when pe- we think people are basic, we lean back towards blackness and we lean towards black artists. I'm using the word prete- pretentious, but the pretension is codified racism, essentially. essentially, I see it that way. For me, the reclamation is very much like this belongs with these other things that you are trying to separate it from. And that, you know, Black people are complex. We're not only like the pioneers of all of this shit, but we are like complex and it's to participate. We don't have to sort of like minimize these other parts of ourselves, you know? And I think that when I see people, I'm going to say no names, but it feels like in dance music to participate as a person of color, particularly a black person, you can be there, but make sure that you don't have any indicators of blackness that feel unpalatable to white people. You know, like you, you're going to say, don't bring that with you into the space. You definitely have to be operating like the type of black person, black artist that they feel, you know what I mean? That they're going to give you social permission to be. So, yeah, I think that's what I'm pushing back against because I feel like, you know, I have grown up in so many different neighborhoods. Yeah, just my whole come from is like pretty diverse. And I think they're all valuable. I think all parts of me are valuable. Like, I hate this sort of like, I'm not going to like essentialize myself or try to like out obscure or out weird someone to like participate in something that I, I keep saying that I think belongs to me. I think what you just described, I, I feel like Infinity Club is an implicit pushback against that. It feels like in its its construction, in the way that, you know, each of the songs stand out from each other, like they feel like siblings because they're drawing from the same source materials, but in different ways. It just feels like it's an implicit rejection of that entire worldview, which I think is wonderful and, and works really, really well. It definitely is. Like, it's a personal thing, firstly. But then, yeah, secondly, it definitely is a sort of like sonically a pushback on just the rules that I think we put on like how music should be, how electronic music should be, on the presence of Black artists in electronic music. It's a pushback on like the how we consume music, just so many things, you know, and it's like a definitely an ongoing project for me. So it's not just like one pro, like one body of work. It will be an ongoing thing that like I explore and kind of develop. Yeah, I feel like as a Black artist, like whether you're consciously engaging with it or not, it's kind of inescapable. Yeah, it is. I don't know. Sometimes it gets a little bit annoying. Like I, I feel like the last, obviously, except this interview, but the last eight interviews, you know, I've been very like 
trying to put an emphasis on like, you know, not allowing the interviewer to constantly like reference like my queerness or my blackness, because it also can feel very like ghettoizing in a way it's like creates a type of like reduction of just like who I am. And it can feel like, yeah, inherently because I'm a black artist, whatever I make is like imbued with you know, my life, my narrative, the things that I care about. But I also think, you know, just as like in media right now, there's very few journalists or like publications who I think are able to talk about Black artists in a way that doesn't feel so like reducing. I, I, I rarely read something where I'm like, oh, wow, like there's a there's a balance here. Or this person, you know what I mean? It's not so like identity based, which can be like fr- frustrating sometimes when you work so hard on music and you want someone to ask you about like the synth you used, you know what I mean? But also it's just like, you know, it's just important re- regardless. Like I'm grateful to like, to have my ideas be at the forefront too, because I also like believe that music is like, so it's like very political. It's important. And I just don't want to, I also am not in the business of like making things blindly. I mean, getting down to to the music itself, there's a lot that I want to talk about, like specific to the tracks as well. Ride With Me, that was a big sonic shift for you. Yeah, it's a little bit, I think because I'm like obviously not a singer. So I'm like a little bit embarrassed when people are like, so ride with me. What were you? And I'm like, ah, I was just like trying something for a second. But, um, you know, I still, it's still like one of my kids. I still love it. But just a little little bit of a cringe moment so sometimes I think it's still a great song. And I, I feel like when I listened to Hooked on Infinity Club, Ride With Me in a way made a lot more sense. I feel like maybe you had to make Ride With Me to make Hooked. That's like, okay, this is the Billboard Hot 100 proof of concept shit. Can you talk to me about like the way that you explore pop in both like Ride With Me and Hooked and your own personal approach to it if it differs in any way from like making the other songs on this record? I mean, definitely. I think when, when I'm doing pop, it is like, I want an anthem moment. So like when I made Ride With Me and when I made Hook, it's both, I, I love pop music, like, you know, with with obviously like a critical eye, like, a you know, a, a boundary, I have a boundary, but I do, yeah, I love pop music. So I think both of them are kind of like my approach or like I'm it's basically presenting it from my perspective of, you know, wanting people to feel like it's something they can be like easily engaged with, that it has like playback value, but it also has elements that feel still like, you know, experimental and still feel like a little bit like challenging on like a sonic level or feel just like a left turn production wise with like the synths I use or the way I sample things or the way that I have like choices I've made with drums, things like that. But yeah, both, both definitely trying to like do something that feels like you know, Caribbean that feels R&B, but also feels like pop leading. I'm like really interested right now in like the overlap of like dancehall and, and 
experimental R&B and like what that could sound like. So they're both kind of like, you know, leading me in that, in the one of those directions of like wanting to like make something. Cause that's not, there's not so many songs that fall in all three categories. I know you would never stand a chance. Baby, let me see you try. Did either Ride With Me or Hooked, did creating those songs like come out of your sessions with Kalela and helping her with, with her record? I mean, I feel like just subconsciously like working with her and watching her sort of like arrange music and being close to someone who is like so narrative based in their music in the way that, you know, I think club music isn't. Right. So it's like, you know, coming from a background of like, okay, I'm like a club DJ, I'm making songs. There's a way that like club music is a little bit like, I don't know how to, like, it's a very like one night standy. Like, you just want to get someone's attention for a second and then you're out and you're gone. You know, whereas I feel like when we're talking about like RB and like songs that have a like a start, middle, and ending, it's, it's different. And I think that just like working with her sort of gave me a sense of like building narratives and songs, which is definitely, I would say like, you know, carried over into like trying to do something like ride with me. That is very, has like more traditional song structure or trying to do something like hook that has like more traditional song structure, even like wicked gal. I don't think I was like thinking about songs. Like now I'm much more like verse hook bridge focused when I first started making music, it was not like that. I'm thinking about percussion was the first thing I was thinking about when I started, like hard hitting drums. And I think now I'm more thinking about narrative and song. Night Vision, I think, has the hardest hitting drums, I think, or some of the hardest hitting drums of all of the songs that you've released thus far. It's still like such a powerful like rhythm section on that track. So you dropped that song in November 2019. And then you sort of held off releasing new solo stuff until May 2021. In that time, obviously, there's the pandemic, lockdown, all that stuff. But I also like noticed that at the time, you were trying out these like socially distanced raves. Did those occasions teach you anything new about the music that you would go on to create? One thing I d- did think that happened in the pandemic that was really good for Toronto is that it radicalized people musically. I think that people were like isolated. A lot of people became despondent, sad, depressed, etc. You know, people felt, yeah, just like a general level of being uncared for. And I think that when we saw this sort of like, you know, surge of socially distanced rave, illegal raves, whatever you want to call it, it kind of from my perspective, forced people to collaborate like across cultural lines. Like I saw a lot of people doing things, not just me, but just like, yeah, creating social spaces that had nothing to do with like who they were before or who they usually hang out with. They were just doing it for like the the act of doing it, you know? And what that caused is like, I was hearing songs that I would never hear. I would never see certain people listening to certain kinds of music before, never. And it also became like 
kind of very much like like a cult culture. Like it reminded me of an era that I don't even have an experience with. Like the way that people were really following to see when the next one was and like working together and like, you know, it just gave the feeling of like true youth culture. Like that's the only way I I know how to describe it. So I think that post pandemic, I'm hearing like just like harder industrial sounds in black spaces that I wasn't hearing beforehand. I And I attribute that to the illegal raves because I just think that, you know, when we're talking about industrial, we're talking about jungle, we're talking about techno, you know, and we're talking about how, you know, it has this very like nefarious, rebellious, characteristic. I feel like people leaned into that because people felt so dis, you know, generally disgruntled during the whole pandemic and I think that's just kind of carried over to kind of an underlying identity in Toronto right right now. Not wholly, but I would say just like in the communities that I'm a part of, I wasn't hearing that before, not in the spaces that I I frequent. Definitely not, definitely not. I think it's cool because I think whether people know it or not, people I think felt very like heard or or felt very like that was kind of the only music that felt like how the world felt at the time. Like I remember going to these raves and like hearing Jungle and it really felt like that's how it felt. That's how the pandemic felt. It, it, you know what I mean? That's how it felt to be making these spaces. And um, you don't really get those moments a lot. Like I, I'd say it really, it just encapsulated like what we were doing, why we were doing it. It sounds like a very potent, if fleeting, kind of catharsis to have. Do you feel like you're still kind of chasing it with the the parties and the shows that you're doing now? Because obviously lockdown isn't happening and there's a different relationship now that club goers have with clubs. Definitely. I mean, always chasing catharsis, but... Yeah, definitely. I feel like we all we all are, but I also feel like the parties are better for it. Like now I'm seeing like all these new collectives popping up. The way that people party have shifted and it kind of feels like this like research. I know people are like, "Oh, stop using the word rave." Like people are like annoyed that like everyone calls a party a rave now. And I guess it could be like kind of a misuse of the word, but I just I like using it because I feel like on a political level, it just is more like indicative of like the relationship to young black and queer people taking up space. Like, I think that's why I, I like like the usage of the word, especially when we're talking about like Toronto and it's like lack of venues and it's like the coded racism. I like that sort of like reclamation of the word because I think the, the sort of like the political s- circumstances are still present regardless if we're in a DIY venue or not. Pre-pandemic, I don't think people were dialed in like that. I don't. I, I didn't see that kind of like physical release happening at, happening at parties. Like the level of just like dancing or just like physical sort of like exertion I'm seeing happening at a party is different than before. I, I think there's definitely like a moment happening here. You know, I think it's unique or maybe it's cyclical, you know, but it's a good moment. That was Bambi talking to the faders Jordan Darville. Bambi's debut EP, Infinity Club, drops this Friday, August 4, via Innovative Leisure. The fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. 
The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.